Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to a new episode of your law podcast. This is your host, Ozzy V. And with me as always on this program, the one with the knowledge, the one with the power, because knowledge is power. He is Andre Verdun, attorney at law. How you doing this afternoon, Ozzy? I'm good. So you got the knowledge, you got the power. It's just the time you don't have. That's right. That's right. So what, <laughs> before we get into today's episode, uh, just to explain what's going to be happening with this particular program. So unfortunately, last week we were unable to provide a new episode. And Andre, the courts are reopening. Yes. And there's a bit of backlog, you say. That's right. So in, in criminal cases here in San Diego, where I, I mentioned, I think, last time we recorded that I was on the, the panel for uh, taking cases that the public defender's office can't take because of conflict or some other reason, that there's a multi, multi-defendant case. That panel has been filing um, about a year's worth of backlog cases. And so they're trying to get me to take about a case a day, which is uh, more than you know, we can handle here. But in addition to that, we haven't had trials in almost a year. So what, what it looks like is going to happen is not only are we going to be inundated with criminal cases to try to... Uh, do our responsibilities to the county of San Diego to handle those indigent uh, cases. But we're also uh, starting tr- our first trial May 6th uh, in Los Angeles at the Stanley Moss Courthouse. Uh, maybe we should promote that. I'm just kidding. Uh, and um, <laughs> we're going to probably do five or six trials this year, which is a lot. I mean, even for a criminal defense lawyer to do five, six trials a year is, is a lot. But some of those cases are civil trials, which take a lot more time. So uh, it's just, it's been, a. I thought this whole year was crazy. The last three weeks have been absolutely insane, which is why our recording schedule has, been, has gotten a little bit off kilter. And when we initially launched the podcast, it was initially intended to shed light on the propositions that were happening throughout the state of California. A lot of people had questions, and you had a lot of stuff to say about the propositions. They're still available. You can go back and check out these episodes. So that being said, we will definitely return for the 2022 election season, as 2021 won't have propositions or any ballot initiatives, as there's only 13 states in the United States that have Uh, ballot propositions happening on odd-numbered years. So we'll be back for sure for the 2022 election season. And if there happens to be any uh, information or anything that our favorite lawyer would love to discuss, talk about, (laughs) we're going to have a special episode. Uh, But this way, we'll record it on our own schedule. We won't need to be locked to having it out at a particular time. That way, we won't need to sacrifice any quality to make sure it gets out by a certain day. This way we can give you the best product possible. Yes, and one thing that we may want to come back and record on uh, may be the look, looks like almost certain uh, recall election. So that may be one topic that we can come by, uh... do an episode about and explain how the recall election process works. But yeah, if something like that comes up or we get a really good question that we really think we should address, we certainly can come back and talk about that. So I would just encourage our listeners, people who enjoy our show, to keep talking about us, keep sharing us, and uh, you know we'll uh, we'll respond accordingly. 
part of me is bummed Arnold isn't a part of it again because I have no reason to get an Arnold voice going. Um, so I wanted a reason to actually work on it because it's not very good right now. I'd, I'd like rate it at a four out of ten. That's why I'm not even, you know, putting it out there right now. Well, I, so. four out of, I want to hear what four nope, out of ten lo- nope, sounds like. Nope, we're not doing that. <laughs> Once we get to six, that's when I'll start experimenting with maybe particular words. But six or five or less, uh, it's, it's still a work in progress. Well, when you get to like seven or eight, maybe we could do, we could have Arnold uh, do a, a special guest appearance on my movie trailer intro. Perhaps. Maybe. <laughs> we'll see. However, we'll get to this week's episode right now. Now, last week, we had covered the exclusionary rule. This week's episode is primarily going to be, in a nutshell, regarding the Fourth Amendment. Yeah, so we got a lot to cover today, and we're going to move through it in, in logical order. So last week, we talked about how uh, on the federal level, the courts created this exclusionary rule doctrine that says that, uh, at least as it applies to the Fourth Amendment, if evidence is obtained in violation of the protections under the Fourth Amendment, that that evidence would be excluded against the, uh, the person that is being prosecuted, the defendant. And in California, we talked about how through the proposition initiative process, going back to propositions, uh, California actually, uh, I don't think, fully informed of what they were doing, but they did uh, nonetheless repeal the state exclusionary rule. So in California, we uh, only have the federal standard. Uh, So if you're looking at federal law or here in California, you would apply what we're going to talk about today. If you're in uh, a state other than California, you may have greater protections under under California, under your state constitution. We don't have that here in California because we decided that it was better to repeal those uh, protections. So where we start our conversation from here is we go to the Constitution and we go to the Fourth Amendment. And that Fourth Amendment, the right of the people to be secure in their persons, houses, papers, and effects against unreasonable searches and seizures shall not be violated, and no warrants shall issue, but upon probable cause, supported by oath or affirmation, and particularly describing the place to be searched and the persons or things to be seized. So the Fourth Amendment is divided into two pieces. We call it the reasonableness requirement and then the search warrant requirement. We're not going to talk about the search warrant requirement yet. We're going to talk about the right of the people to be secured in their persons, houses, papers, and effects. So under the Fourth Amendment, the government cannot secure, seize, or search things unless it's reasonable to do so. A seizure is, going back to our fact pattern, so our fact pattern was about a a person who was uh, detained. Apparently, he was accused of running through a stop sign, if I recall. So just to recap, because it was a couple weeks ago since we last talked about this, there's about an individual sent an email in saying that they had done a, quote, rolling stop, didn't do a complete stop, so they were pulled over. An officer had said that they had smelled marijuana, so then said that they're going to search the vehicle. And then the, the question was essentially, are they allowed to search the car without the consent? Correct. And that's what we're ultimately going to answer here today. So before you even get to the search, though, you have to consider the seizure because when a police officer activates their overhead lights and possibly their sirens, and therefore that's the universal sign for pullover, they have seized that person under the Fourth Amendment. So the court created a different standard for seizure under the Fourth Amendment 
uh, under a Terry, uh, case called Terry v. Ohio, which uh, also is the one that created the Terry pat down, the fact that a police officer can pat you down over your clothes. But in addition to the ability for police officers to, to do an over the clothes pat down, the court also created in the Terry case a lower standard for detaining a person to investigate a potential crime. And that standard is that the officer has to have articulated suspicion that the person uh, is either engaged in a crime, is about to be engaged in a crime, or just been engaged in a crime. Because the officer says that he saw the uh, individual roll through a stop sign, there would be that articulable and particularized basis, factual basis for the stop. So the initial detention, which is a seizure of his vehicle and his person, would be lawful. So after we determine that the initial seizure is lawful, we now need to get to the search. And uh, this person was asked if the officer could search his vehicle, and the, and the person said no, correct? See. Yes, that is correct. Okay. So we talked about how under the Fourth Amendment that searches that are unreasonable violate the Fourth Amendment. So now we need to look at a very important case in our constitutional jurisprudence that talks about what is a search? What, ha- what is required in order for a defendant to claim that they have been searched? And uh, I'll pass the torch on to you. So specifically referring to unreasonable searches, the United States Supreme Court answered that question in Katz v. United States 389 U.S. 347, when it held that the Fourth Amendment, quote, protects people, not places. The court held that when the government searches an area that a person has a reasonable expectation of privacy over without a warrant, the search is per se unreasonable, subject to a few limited exceptions. To determine if a person has a reasonable expectation of privacy over an area, the court will determine whether, one, a person has exhibited an actual expectation of privacy, and second, that the expectation be one that society is prepared to recognize as reasonable. So what the Supreme Court is saying here is is that if a person exercises in a subjective attempt to keep something secure from public view, including the government's view, and it's the type of privacy interest that society is willing to recognize as one that's reasonable, that the government has to have a warrant to search that area. And if they don't have a warrant, It's per se unreasonable, and if it doesn't fall under a few limited exceptions, the search is unlawful, and then we would apply the exclusionary rule. Of course, as is the case with all constitutional rights, you can consensually waive these rights. So if an officer asks you, can I search your vehicle, and the person who is driving the vehicle or owns the vehicle says yes, the officer is permitted to do that without a warrant, without probable cause, without any level of legal cause required, because you can always give the government consent. I mean, that comes when it comes to questioning. That's why we have the Miranda warnings, where they have to advise you that you have the right to uh, remain silent, but then you can consensually waive those rights. And the same thing under the Fourth Amendment. You have these protections, but these protections are waivable. So the officer approached the driver of this vehicle, and he asked him if he could search the vehicle, and the office, and the driver said no. But then it sounds like the Uh, officer ordered the driver out of the vehicle. Now, we won't get into the case law specifically. I think it's it's just not important a point, but this just suffice it to say that 
when you are subject to a traffic detention, uh, the Supreme Court has ruled that the uh, police officer may order the drivers and the passengers of the vehicle out in order to perform their uh, investigation for the traffic violation. But it is important to understand that this traffic stop can only be uh, can only go on for so long as it's required to carry out the purpose of the stop. So for the officer to ask the defendant in this case to get out of the vehicle, that was permissible. It doesn't sound like under the uh, facts that we were given here that in asking the, off- uh, the driver to do that, that he extended beyond the purpose of the stop, the length of the detention. And it didn't sound like at that point he even believed he had a probable cause to search the vehicle because he asked to search the vehicle. And when the uh, driver said no, he seemed somewhat to honor that. He, He told the driver to step out, but he didn't actually take any efforts in order to search the vehicle. However, uh, Was the fact pattern that when the door opened, the officer noticed something inside? Well, no. So the individual had stepped out of the car. And well, when he asked him why, the officer said, because I told you to. Got out of the vehicle. So they were going to perform a pat down, patted them down, found nothing. And then the officer said they were going to search his car because he could smell marijuana when when they opened his door. So under these facts, a pat down would be illegal. And the reason why is because under the case of Terry v. Ohio, the court said that in order for someone to be patted down, in addition to the reason for the stop, the police officer has to have reasonable suspicion that the person is armed and dangerous, which is, again, articulable facts and circumstances that a police officer could uh, rely on to raise that suspicion. From at least what we have in front of us, we didn't have any uh, reason to believe that the officer stopped this person for, for engaging in you know, violence or a robbery or uh, that he made any threats to the officer, that the officer knew him to be violent or a member of some type of street gang or anything like that. Uh, however, nothing was found from the pat-down, so no harm, no foul, I guess. Uh, if something was found and the pat-down was deemed to be unlawful, then you could apply the exclusionary rule, but uh, there was nothing found as part of the pat-down. So what's, what's the next step? Once they searched, they did find something under the seat. It wasn't marijuana, but they didn't disclose what it was. They were arrested. Okay, so let's back up. So he, he does the pat-down okay. search. He doesn't find anything. I thought that there was some, that he, the officer saw something in the car after the pat-down search. No, so after the pat-down search, he smelled the marijuana. Okay. Stated that he smelled the marijuana and was going to do the search. And then at the search, that's when the officer found something under the seat. Got it. Which wasn't marijuana, wasn't disclosed what it was. Yeah, and so and we should then, make the point, too, and this might be obvious, but sometimes it's forgotten. You cannot justify a search by what you find. So the officer can't say, well, I found this under the seat, and therefore the search was valid. So he has to be able to justify the search, the basis for the search, based on what he knew at the time he decided to conduct the search. So it sounds like here that the basis for conducting the search was that the officer smelled marijuana and therefore had reason to believe, reasonable, or, I'm sorry, probable cause to believe that there was evidence of a crime inside the vehicle. So that takes us to the automobile exception. And the automobile exception is an exception to the warrant requirement that was first created by the 1925 U.S. Supreme Court case of Carroll v. United States, 1925, 267 U.S. 132. 
the doctrine holds that due to the inherent mobility of cars, a police officer may search a car without a warrant if they have probable cause to believe that evidence of a crime is in the vehicle. This rule allows the police to search the entire car, including packages and containers in the car and in the trunk. And the automobile exception, and we're not going to get too deep into this today, but it's a very, very broad ability to search because it doesn't just allow you to search the vehicle and the trunk, but it also allows you to open up any package in the trunk. There's a package or in the car, uh, there's a package within a package. It allows you to search that as well, which is uh, not common. Usually when you have the ability to search and you find something that looks like it may contain evidence, in, in most instances, you're allowed to secure that package, but then you have to obtain a warrant. So you have this like super ability to search once something's inside the car. When I'm teaching this in law school class, one of the fact patterns that I always uh, use to point out how things change when they enter a vehicle is we talk about how when someone's walking down the street with a suitcase and the officer has probable cause to believe that there's evidence of a crime in that suitcase, can they stop him and search it? The answer is no. But the moment he puts that suitcase in a vehicle, they can now search the vehicle and get into the suitcase. So Things transform as they enter a vehicle. A vehicle is the absolute worst place that people want to store their contraband. So real uh, quick, are you saying that vehicles are transformers? <laughs> they are. They're transformers. Sorry. More than... <laughs> <laughs> that was bad. Sorry, continue. Uh, so, uh, and I was going to get into it, but there's a bunch of cases that talk about, like, does a vehicle have to be actually mobile in order for the car to come under the automobile exception? The answer is no. The car could have no engine, it could have no wheels, it could have no tires, it could be, be have tires, but they're flat. <laughs> Despite that the first line says, due to the inherent mobility of the car, it could have no engine, it could have no wheels, but still... And it could be a motorhome. And, okay. It could be a motorhome that somebody lives in, and it's still... And it could be a motorhome that's not readily, readily mobile. You see, we see this a lot uh, with these uh, cases, like, for example, uh, the search incident lawful arrest exception, and you know, we wouldn't get into it, but the court creates these doctrines to allow searches based on this idea that something could happen, like under the wingspan rule, you're allowed to search a arrestee's wingspan because they might be able to destroy evidence or to uh, gain a weapon. But even if an officer immediately arrests somebody, and puts them in handcuffs and removes them from the scene, they can still go back and search the area, even though they can no longer access evidence because of the uh, rationale behind the rule. So this is one of those things where even if the rationale doesn't come into play, even if it could not come into play, even if a car is parked, disabled, and it can only take you five minutes to get a warrant, if a police officer still has probable cause, they can still search that vehicle. So uh, I always tell my uh, students that you can learn the rationale for why they created it, but in almost every instance, don't get caught up on it because you don't have to find that those elements are necessary are, are present for the search to be valid. So again, car with no tires, but the police officer has probable cause to believe uh, there's a package in the vehicle that has uh, evidence of a crime inside of it. You have time to get a warrant. You could also in almost every situation secure the vehicle and not let it go anywhere until you get a warrant. But none of that matters. The bottom line is you have to have probable cause. So the odor of marijuana would 
be sufficient to give a police officer probable cause to believe that there's marijuana in the vehicle. So in a lot of situations where a police officer smells marijuana, that very well may be sufficient probable cause to search that vehicle inside and out. But we're in a changing time here in the United States. And in a lot of states, marijuana is no longer unlawful to have in your vehicle. It is unlawful to smoke it and drive while under the influence. But the presence of marijuana in your vehicle, and therefore the odor of of marijuana in your vehicle, isn't necessarily evidence of criminal activity. So if we were to be talking about this question a year ago, even when you know medical marijuana was lawful, but recreational marijuana wasn't, I think that we could have come out to a different conclusion. And we certainly would be coming to a different conclusion or, or an easier conclusion, I should say, if marijuana was flat out, even if it was an infraction, it was flat out illegal like it was you know, in California. When did we pass the uh, Compassionate Use Act? Was it like 1990-something? It was, I want to say late 90, mid to late 90s. Don't know the exact year, but it, mid to late 90s, I yeah, believe. Yeah, and... That's when it first started in Oakland. And then a lot of uh, states have followed suit more recently. The reason why I bring this up, because I know we have a lot of listeners outside of California, and so I don't want there to be any confusion about this. If you're in a state where marijuana is illegal to have, even if it's just an infraction, there would be probable cause to search that vehicle inside and out. And so what was found under the seat would be admissible. It would not be affected by the illegal pat-down because the pat-down wasn't the but-for cause of locating the substance. It was the odor of marijuana. However, a very recent case came out mid-last year, late last year actually, that actually addressed a very similar fact pattern here in California and clarified whether or not the odor of marijuana or the visual observation of marijuana, so long as it wasn't more than a gram, because in, I'm sorry, more than an ounce, because uh, in California, uh, you cannot be arrested for less than, uh, actually legal to have one ounce or less. You actually would know that pretty well, Ozzy, right? Why? I don't <laughs> understand kidding. why I would say that. Um, <laughs> I, sure. Well, I, I believe my mom's I an, believe advocate, it is an, an advocate, an, an avid marijuana smoker. I don't care if she uh, gets mad at that. I don't think she'd mind. Um, so, you know, I always tell her that, you know, if you're going to travel around California, of course, don't cross the, the, the border, whether it be uh, border to a different state or Mexico. Just make sure you don't have more than an ounce in your vehicle, because at least in the state of California, there's no crime in that. So. Uh, there was a uh, individual that was pulled over in uh, 2020. The officer had smelled marijuana and saw what they call possibly a small amount of marijuana. And uh, they used that to conduct, to convert an inventory search into a full vehicle search. And they would try to rely on the automobile exception. And so uh, let's examine that case. This is the case of People v. Johnson, Cal App 5th. Now, there is some more to this that hasn't been determined yet because the case does not yet have a site. Can you elaborate on what that means? Yeah, so um, you know, typically when we give a case site, we'll say like 31, Calat 5th, page you know, 455. So this, this site is blank, Calat 5th, blank, because we don't know what book it's going to go into yet. And we don't know what page Got number it. it's so going to be so still to be so determined. That's why there's Got it. to be okay. determined. So yes. in this... States defendant Damar Darrell Johnson 
was parked on the side of a road when two police officers approached to investigate his car's missing registration tag. Defendant ended up handcuffed in the patrol car for resisting an officer. After the defendant was detained, one of the officers approached the defendant's car to perform what the officer described as a tow inventory search. The officer smelled marijuana emanating from the car and found, quote, possibly a couple of grams of marijuana in the center console. The search then purportedly transitioned from an inventory search into a probable cause search, which revealed a loaded handgun in the rear cargo area of the car. The court held the odor of marijuana and visual observation of approximately two grams of marijuana in a plastic baggie knotted at the top in the defendant's parked car was not probable cause to justify a search incident to defendant's arrest for possessing a firearm and ammunition by a prohibited person and resisting arrest. So uh, we want to get into inventory searches because it doesn't fit this fact pattern. But the important point is, is that here the California Court of Appeals recently ruled that when a person has a lawful amount of marijuana in their vehicle or the odor of marijuana is present in their vehicle, that alone does not create probable cause to search the vehicle because you can possess a lawful amount of marijuana in your car. And so what the court basically said in their analysis was, we shouldn't assume that just because someone has marijuana in their vehicle, that they're automatically committing a crime. So in order for uh, a probable cause search of a vehicle to exist in California, at least after the Johnson case, you would have to be able to establish through facts and circumstances, and when I say you, I mean the officer, uh, that the person actually possesses more than one ounce of marijuana. And uh, if they could establish that, then that could be the basis for a vehicle search. Of course, if the person who was found to have more than an ounce of marijuana was able to justify on the spot that they were legal in transporting more than a, uh, an ounce of marijuana, then that would uh, eviscerate the probable cause. So another thing I wanted to point out is that Damar Daryl Johnson is a great wrestling name. I think someone should adopt that. DDJ. DDJ. I just... I just thought that was a really, there's a lot of criminal defense out there. I think that's just like the most great stage names for wrestling or movie stars or whatever it is. That's a good name. Yeah. No, I, I, <laughs> I like it. So to our listener here, I think you should get hold of this case and give it a read because it sounds like that this case is directly on point. And assuming that there were no other facts that weren't given to us through the, through the uh, email, you had a really good chance, I think, of having this, uh, challenging the search under, uh, People v. Johnson, the odor of marijuana in California in and of itself is not probable cause to justify a vehicle search. And not and, uncommon. And not uncommon at all, no. And, um, and I tell you, uh, I, I, I applaud People v. Johnson because I can't tell you how many times that I've had clients have been pulled over by police vehicles and it was like they could smell the marijuana driving down the freeway. <laughs> uh, the, the, uh, and, and I say that sarcastically because it wasn't clear. The amount of people, especially people of color, that have been, in my opinion, unfairly subject to searches by law enforcement because of the purported odor of marijuana, and I say that because, you know, oftentimes when they finally find marijuana, it's, it's crumbles somewhere in the cup holder or something, I find it to be very unjust. And so 
this case will be, in fact, I already have a case that we're going to bring a suppression motion on probably next week here in San Diego, uh, based on uh, a fact pattern very similar to People v. Johnson. And uh, this case grew out of facts that actually just happened. So the police officers should, should be aware of People v. Johnson, but it appears they're still searching vehicles based on the odor uh, of marijuana or the presence of a small amount of marijuana. And um, uh, we need to make sure that people are aware that they're not in a position to be searched and therefore should not give consent to search just because an officer says something like, I smell marijuana. Because sometimes what will happen is the officer will already smell the marijuana. Why don't you let me search for it and make this go easier for you? And then the person will think that uh, they need to give up consent. Uh, That's possibly not even a valid consent, but it could be. And so people really need to be aware of this case and what it holds. And in fact, I'm glad that we had a, a question that caused us to broach this issue. Right. And it's perfect timing as well. I mean, as you mentioned, the case late last year that came out. So this is very new information. So it could still take a while for it to become general knowledge amongst all law enforcement officers. So it's good information to have. You know, just in case you never know. Now, unfortunately, that reaches the conclusion of this episode. As I mentioned previously, we will be back for sure for the 2022 election season to go over any major propositions, but there may potentially be some specials that come down the road. In the meantime, you can like the Facebook page, Your Law Podcast, and there you will find any new episodes. You could also subscribe, and anytime we're able to put out a new episode, You'll be informed as to when it's out and ready to go. Just in case you might have any questions that could inspire a future special, you can go ahead and send an email to yourlawpod at gmail.com. And of course, contact information for the Law Office of Andre Verdun. You can visit facebook.com slash verdunlaw or email at office at verdunlaw.com. Now, at the top of the episode, Andre mentioned how busy he has been being with his load of work. Well, uh, since places are now opening up, specifically restaurants and bars, as a trivia host, I'm coming back to hosting now twice a week. So if you're feeling up for the indoor dining experience or being at a brewery and tasting room, I'm hosting on Wednesdays and Thursday nights in Orange County, Wednesday night at Griffin's Grill, 7.30, free to play. That is Address location, 11272 Los Alamitos Boulevard in Los Alamitos, California. Once again, 7.30 every Wednesday. And every Thursday, I'll be hosting at Taps Brewery and Barrel Room. That's every Thursday at 6 p.m. And that address location is 15501 Red Hill Avenue in Tustin, California. Now, in terms of what you're thinking, like, oh, what's the deal with social distancing and all that? Well... There have been restrictions that have been lifted. So, like I said, if you're feeling comfortable, come out to it. I know at the Wednesday location, I'll, I just come around to your table and read your answer, so that way you don't need to get up. The Thursday place, you text me your answer. So, either way, you don't even have to leave your seat. But, of course, that is Orange County, California, and I know we have listeners from all over the state. So, if you're ever in the area, when things, you know, get back to normal, feel free to stop and say hi. Now, Andre... Which one, which one has the better hamburger? I'm going to be completely honest. I haven't had any burgers from this from these places. See, when when <laughs> I show up to a place to host trivia and they always ask me, I can technically get a, a 
a piece of food or some meal, whatever. It's part of the, you know, my payment or the contract or whatever, but I never ask for anything. It's like my entire digestive system just stops and is just focused. Mm. Nope. We're, we're, we're on the mic tonight. We're, yeah. we're not going to be like, I don't even drink alcohol. I just have water. That's it. Yeah. Somebody has previously purchased me a drink and i'm not gonna turn stuff down you know what i mean <laughs> that'd be rude if you did that absolutely however i have turned down <laughs> beer because i'm not a big beer guy okay i'm actually a zero beer guy i am too i i actually um was, i don't get any more crazier than coca-cola but uh uh you know we'll be in trial my whole law practice will actually be there probably for a week or two uh in may so we'll have to come out and see uh do some trivia well there you go absolutely and you can slip me all the answers, so I. <laughs> that does not happen. <laughs> I just get it. No, if anything, I give very obscure hints. Now, this is going to be the last time you'll hear my voice on this program for a very long time, so I'll just tell you a, a, a window into my thought process. When I have the ability to control the music at places that I host trivia at, uh, for example, I, <laughs> honest to God, can't remember the question, but I remember the answer as being the thyroid gland right? The answer was the thyroid gland. So I had played the song Step by Step by New Kids on the Block. Do you know why? No, I can't even tell you that I know that song. I'm sure if you heard it, you would recognize it. It was pretty popular in that time, early 90s. Now, I believe. Now, Step by Step was also a sitcom on ABC starring Suzanne Somers. Suzanne Somers was a spokesmodel. Yeah. Suzanne Summers was a spokesmodel for the Thigh Master. <laughs> thigh Master, Thyroid. And I've heard people like, oh, I miss geeks who drinks because they give you hints in the music. It's like, yeah. Not like Aussie hints. Aussie hints are like, man, is he being a jerk? Sorry. Those are Aussie hints. Wait, wait, wait. So you're telling me that your quote obscured hint is that you're playing step by step by the You Kids of the Block to trigger the memory of Step by Step, the TV show, on, uh, thank God it's Friday. It was, it was, it was TGIF. TGIF. Now, I think yeah, yeah, yeah. You're, you're also, when I, when I say Aussie hint, I think you're putting too much thought into the hint portion. You have to understand <laughs> that when Aussie is a prefix to hint, it's not really a hint. Okay, it's, so. Where the hell did he get this connection? Put all the emphasis on the O-Z-Z-Y. Precisely. You know, first couple of rounds will be easy, but unfortunately I haven't gotten to a location where I'm able to control the music yet. When that happens, you'll know. All right, so he is attorney at law, Andre Verdun, and I'm Ozzy V, and we'll see you next time on the next episode of Your Law Podcast. Your Law Podcast.